Welcome to the Outpouring Orlando Sermon Podcast. The Outpouring is a vibrant, Christ-centered church in sunny Orlando, Florida. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy today's message by Pastor John Daniels. Uh, if you have a Bible with me, I would invite you to um, open your Bible and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. And we'll be reading today verses 13 through 21. 1 Peter chapter 1. Verses 13 through 21, it is so heartwarming to see all of you with your Bibles in church in 2020. It is this amazing sight that the Lord is beholding. Um, this is awesome. Y'all actually brought Bibles to church. This is great. And Earl's back. Look at Earl. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I'm going to preach my best sermon. Earl's back. Oh, we miss you, Earl. Oh, man. First Peter chapter one, verses 13 through 21. And so here's what we're going to do. I'm glad you got your Bibles, but I'm reading from the CSB version of the Bible. So you can read from what you got on your phone or in front of you or you can read with us on the screen. So you know how we do um, so that we can all grow in learning and reading the Bible. We're going to read out loud with our big voices. Fellas, please help the ladies because there's a lot of ladies in here. Put some bass in your chest, fellas, so it can sound even in here. All right. Y'all ready to read? Ready? Read. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you this morning for this opportunity to um, study around your word, God, to worship through your word. Father, I pray this morning, ultimately, Lord, that your son Jesus would be glorified this morning, God. I pray that he will be made known um, this morning amongst your people. Lord, I pray for the Holy Spirit to touch our hearts, to fill us, God. I pray that the Holy Spirit would renew our minds, would transform us, God, as we listen and we participate in what you have to say today. And so, Father, I pray even for the person that is here this morning who may be distracted by what is going on in their personal lives, I pray, God, that you would allow them the grace, the freedom, God, the liberty, God, to be able to focus this morning, Lord. I pray that they will be able to cast their cares on you, God, and that they will be able to look to you, Father. And so, Lord, we just thank you this morning for everything that you're doing in our lives. Lord, I thank you for everything that you're doing in this church, God. Uh, we thank you for your presence this morning, God. And we pray that by the end of today's service, God, that we would have grown, God, that we will look more like Jesus. And so, Father, we thank you. We give you glory. We give you honor. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And the people of God said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. My sermon title this morning is It's a Different World. It's a Different World. If the title of my sermon sounds familiar, 
then that means you are familiar with what is regarded as one of the most popular television shows in American television history, especially if you grew up in the late 80s and early 90s in a black household. The TV show, A Different World, was actually a spinoff of the massively successful and long-running show, The Cosby Show. It was the version of The Cosby Show that showed one of the daughters who went off to a college that was called Hillman. And so the show premiered September 24th, 1987 on NBC. And so if you don't understand the popularity of the show, I want to tell you this, its premiere episode at the time that it aired and still today was the highest rated television pilot in television history with 38 million viewers. For six seasons, the show chronicled college life for African-American students at a HBCU. If you don't know what that stands for, that stands for historically black college or university. Amen. Amen. The show's premise was to give insight into the lives of black students who were away from home for the first time, yet having to deal with many of the social and political pressures in the world around them. They, they dealt with racism. They dealt with the AIDS epidemic. They dealt with domestic violence. They dealt with what does it look like to break away from people from your past while you're trying to gain something in your Future And so truly for those who were away from home for the first time who may have been sheltered, it was a different world. And so the show ultimately depicted the balancing act of engaging with their present while at the same time keeping their minds fixated on their future hope. I think a better explanation of the show can be demonstrated to us by singing the theme song. And I think the theme song is interesting because it almost appeals to a person who is singing from advice that they've received from a good parent. And so if you were born or reared in the 80s or in the 70s or maybe if you were born uh, in the early 90s or if you just have television now and you watch reruns, we're going to sing this theme song together. It is the one of the most popular theme songs in television history. And I'll begin for your sake and you can join along. I know my parents love me. Stand behind me, come what may. I know now that I'm ready, yeah. For I finally heard them say, it's a different world. It's a different world. It's a different world than where you come from. Uh, yes, it is now, yeah. Here's our chance to make it. If we focus on our goal, uh, you can dish it, we can take it. Just remember what you've been told. It's a different world. It's a different world. It's a different world. 
than where you come from. Would you give yourself a hand? And so this is the same situation that the exiles have found themselves in, if you were here last week. These people were not exiles because they chose to be exiles, yet they were exiles because God chose them. That God chose them from the foundation of the world as his chosen people, and they were to live for him while at the same time engaging with the world. And so it can be hard living in a different world with so many things happening around us. But the remedy last week for the exiles with that would be that they set their hope in something that happened in the past, namely the resurrection of Jesus. They were to ground their hope for the future in a past event, which was that Jesus was raised from the dead. And so the response to that hope was for them to live differently as exiles in the world. And so today I want to give us a few things that will help us as we are journeying as pilgrims and exiles through this world as we deal with pressures. I want to give us a remedy, a few remedies actually, that will help us as exiles to engage with the present while at the same time keeping our eye fixated on the future. And the first thing that you need as an exile to survive and maintain is that you need a large hefty dose of hope. You need hope. The first thing that we need is hope. Here's what it says in verse 13. It says this, therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is telling us that we have to live in the reality that Jesus at some point in the future is coming back for his people. That means for us that although we may have difficulties in this present life, we can have hope in the future because Jesus at some point is coming back to make everything wrong right. That's a beautiful promise and that is a beautiful hope. I know that I can deal with what the world handles uh, gives me, I know I can handle it if I have my eye fixed on a future that I know things will get better at some point. It is easier to go through a thing when I know that I can see the light at the end of the tunnel and that light for us as exiles is that Jesus is coming back again. How do you know that? I know he's coming back because he was already raised from the grave. And so we set our lives in this reality that although we are here, this is a temporary situation no matter how hard it gets. And so as exiles, this does not mean that we stand idly by waiting for Jesus to crack the sky. But as exiles, what God has called us is he's called us not to sit by, but God has called us to do something. He's called us to do something. And so we are engaged in a battle to resist adopting cultural values and also keeping our eyes fixed on the coming grace of Jesus Christ at the same time. And so Peter tells us the first thing we need to do is be sober minded, to be sober minded. It literally means that we have to bind up the loins 
of our mind. Bind up the loins of our mind. Pastor, wait a minute. You already took it too far. What does bind up the loins of my I didn't know I had loins in my mind. And what he's saying is that in antiquity, men used to wear long flowing robes. Men didn't wear skinny jeans in antiquity. They wore long flowing robes. And so they, they wore long flowing robes and in their day to day life. And so what would happen whenever they got ready to do some sort of strenuous activities, they would have to bind up their robe and pull their robe up and tuck it in their belt. Why would they do this? So that their legs could be free, so that they can move freely, so that they can be ready for action, so that they can exert maximum effort for whatever the task at hand was. Essentially, when he says that they are to bind up the loins of their mind, what he's saying is get yourself in position and be ready to engage in battle to resist the culture, but engage with it at the same time. And so being exiled means that I don't just sit here waiting for stuff to happen. I don't just sit here waiting for Jesus to come in the by and by, but I engage on mission as I live as an exile in the world. And so we have work to do. If you still are confused, essentially what he's saying is roll up your sleeves, R roll up your sleeves, prepare for intentional effort to engage with the world, but also keep your hope in Christ at the same time. It is the same thing that Jesus told his disciples when he told them that the, the master was coming at some point. He was trying to teach them about stewardship and managing their responsibilities faithfully and wisely and, and for somebody else, for the manager. And so as good stewards, they were supposed to stay dressed and ready for action at all times. And so we as exiles should always have a mind that is sober and always anticipating his coming, but at the same time engaging with the world on his behalf. And so that is what it's calling us to do. And so thinking sober mindedly is not something that happens automatically. We actually have to work at it. It requires intentionality that, that we have to often remind ourselves this is just temporary. I am here on assignment. I am here on a mission. God didn't just drop me here to be consumed with the world and consumed with my own self, but I'm here on a mission and I have to stay focused. It is hard at my job, but I have to stay focused. It is hard in this life, but I got to stay focused. There is something else that I need to keep my eye on while I'm engaging with the world at the same time. And so how do I become sober minded? Well, you become sober-minded by avoiding mental or spiritual intoxication with the culture and with the world. Anything that would make you confuse the reality that Christ has already revealed to you. That, that, that you don't get so bogged down in the world that you think that, that, that this is all that there is. That, that you don't come, become so consumed with yourself, that you don't come, become so consumed with everything that is going around you, but that you keep your hope in Jesus and you realize that this world is not everything. That, that there is more to come, but that, that I'm engaging with the world, but I'm keeping my hope grounded and rooted in the return of Jesus Christ. Being sober means I don't allow myself to become so consumed with everything going on in culture and society that allow it to distract me and draw me in to my own selfish desires. And so being intoxicated with the culture can gently lull us to sleep and make us lose sight of Christ and the reason that we're really here. Do you know that the reason that you're really here is not to be so popular that you gain more followers? Do you know that the reason that you're here 
is not for you to level up or boss up or any other up. That, that, do you know that the reason that you're here is not for you to buy the biggest house on the block or not for you to get the most degrees behind your name? That, that, that is not for you to make the most money, but the reason that you're here right now is to represent Christ no matter where you are or what you are called to do? That, that, that's the reason that you're here, but the culture can lull us to sleep and we can get in the rat race. But you know, a wise preacher once told me the only person that wins a rat race is a rat. And, and so we, we have to be mindful, mindful that, that we don't become consumed with the passions of our flesh and with selfish and personal pursuits that only serve and feed our own selfish ambitions. And so when we don't set our hope in Christ, we look at life from the lens of the culture around us. And here's what will happen. We'll view suffering through the lens of the world. We'll view success through the lens of the world. We view relationships from the lens of the world. And all of those things have the tendency to place us in a, a place of aimless pursuits which will eventually drive us to discontentment or to cause us to lose our zeal and fervor for the Lord when things don't go our way. And so when you don't achieve what you want to achieve, you get down on yourself and you think that there's something wrong with you or the world is not spinning correctly or that God has forgotten about you. But when you have a biblical worldview, you realize that although I don't have the promotion and I don't have the money that I think I'm supposed to have or the people that are on Instagram have, what you'll say is, you know what? I'm not here for that anyway. If I get blessed, it's because of God. If I'm where I am, it's because of God. He has me where he has me, so I'm going to be content with it and do the best with what I've been given. That's the biblical worldview. When we suffer... In this world, the world will tell us, how can a God that you claim is good allow people to suffer? But when you have a biblical worldview and you realize that we're just exiles and my hope is on something to come, I know this is only temporary and God is using my suffering to make me look more like his son and, and for me not to place my hope here, but to place my hope on his coming where there would no longer be any suffering. And so that's why we have to train ourselves to be sober minded and not get lulled to sleep with the culture and therefore become discontent and therefore lose our hope and our faith in God. And so how do I do this? Well, you don't do it on your own. You actually need the spirit's power to be sober minded. You, you need the spirit's power to fight off temptation, to think the world's way and to adopt and embrace a biblical worldview that believes that the grounds of our hope and our trust is in God. You need the spirit's help. Holy Spirit, help me today to not get bogged down in thinking that I'm a success or a failure because of how much money I have or how much money I don't have. Lord, Lord, please don't let me view relationships, whether I'm single or married, and let me determine that whether I'm successful or not. Because I can be married and unsuccessful, or I can be single and God be pleased. But, but, but only a biblical worldview will allow me to come to that conclusion. That, that ultimately, if I'm single, I'm actually waiting for the real groomsmen to come. That, that even if I'm married, the person that I'm married to, we just, we just showing a picture of what the real wedding is going to look like. That, that, that's the biblical worldview. 
And so that, that is what he's calling them to, but, but he's calling them this to do this in the Spirit's power. People, we have a hope that is grounded in Christ, and that hope is not wishing. That hope is actually guaranteed. I'm wishing that it won't rain later today. But we live in Florida. I hope it don't rain, but that hope is kind of like wishing. Because we don't know. It could be 62 degrees when we leave out of here, or it could be 95. The weather here is bipolar. We don't know. And so that ain't really hope it don't rain. That's actually, I wish it don't rain. But, but the hope that I have is a hope that is certain because it's grounded in something that already happened. And so he is exhorting believers not to put their confidence anywhere else but in God. Not in a job, not in a person, not in your status, not in your education, not in money, but to set our hope means to give God our undivided confidence because of the certainty of our hope in Christ. But you know what? When I have biblical hope, when I have real hope and my hope is rooted and grounded in Christ, my hope produces something in me. You know what? Uh Uh-oh. Hope actually leads to point number two. Hope leads to holiness. Before you freak out. Let's read verses 14 through 16. The first thing we need is hope. The second thing we need is holiness. Here's what it says in verses 14 through 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. But as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in your conduct. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Pastor, um, what, what does holy mean? Holy means to be set apart. Holy means to be set apart. But first I want to address verse 14. He says, do not be conformed to desires of your former ignorance. And what he's saying is, before you came to Christ, the life you lived was a life of ignorance. You didn't have the reality that you have now. And so we cannot allow the former ignorance to superimpose itself on our present and our future. So that you, you have to resist against your former ignorance, your former way of life, and not let your former ignorance bully you in your new life. And so he calls us to be holy because he's holy. We respond and we mirror the character of the one who called us. The one who made us exiles wants us to have his character. He wants us to mirror himself. The call to be holy is God calling us by his grace. Being holy is not something you do on your own. But let me say this. Some of us grew up in church, so I must, must explain what holiness is not. <laughs> holiness is not a big hat. Holiness is not bronze or nude stockings. Holiness is not a long dress. Holiness is not all white on first Sundays. Holiness is not white gloves. Holiness is not white Dr. Scholl's shoes. (laughs) 
holiness is not peppermint in your purse. (laughs) Holiness is not giving honor to God who's the head of my life. That's not holy because you can say and do all those things. Wherever your mind takes you. Because that happens on Sunday. But holiness is not something we do so that God can say you're holy. But holy is actually a response to what God has already done. It is a response to what God has already done through his son Jesus. And so what God has done for us is always the basis and the motivation for why we live the way we live as believers. Let me say that again. What God has done for us is always the basis and the motivation for why Christians live the way that they live. You don't live holy as a single person so that you can find a Boaz. You live holy as a single person because God said you should be holy. It is a response to something that has already happened in your life. And so here's what it is. When he calls us to be holy, it is a gospel driven holiness. It is a gospel driven holiness. It's not a Baptist holiness. It's not an apostolic holiness. It's not a Presbyterian holiness. It's not a primitive Baptist holiness. It's not a missionary Baptist holiness. It's not a church of God in Christ holiness. It's gospel driven holiness because it is a response to something that has already been that has already happened. And so we cannot be like God without God's help. So if you ever felt that holiness is impossible for you, I want to confirm your fears. It is. We need God. We cannot do it on our own. And when we fail to be holy like he is holy, we should let our failure drive us to the cross. Drive us to the cross and seek God's, seek repentance and seek God's grace and then get back up again in his power to live the way that he called us to live. And so we should always see our shortcomings, not as a reason to back up from God, but we should let our shortcomings drive us to the cross so that we find more grace from God. So it means that we surrender to the work of God through the Holy Spirit. We surrender to the work of God that is happening through the Holy Spirit, that is happening on the inside of us, where the Holy Spirit helps us to deny the sinful impulses and and, and the ones even that are accepted and made normal by society. And so when he says, be holy, it's your father, or as the one who called you is holy, Peter is actually drawing from Leviticus. You know, the one that you've studied He's drawing from Leviticus where God's people that had been delivered from bondage were to take on not the nations and the culture that surrounded them, not to take on their ways, but they were to look behind the law of God that God gave them and not just see rules and codes of conduct, but to see the nature and the character of God himself. When God says, do not lie, God is essentially saying, I'm not a liar. When he says do not steal, it's not saying you go out and not to steal, though you shouldn't steal. What he's saying is I'm not a thief. And so it's revealing the character and the holiness of God. And so when he handed it down to, to, the, to, the, to the Israelites, when he handed down the Ten Commandments, he was actually revealing to them what he was like. And so Leviticus 19.2 says this, 
speak to the entire Israelite community and tell them, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. And so today I'm going to give you three reasons, three reasons why we are holy. Three reasons why we are holy. So speaking of Israel, Israel was always intended to be different from the other nations around them. That they were God's prized possession. These were God's chosen people. He, he called them, he set them apart. They were his prized possession. And so we are holy, number one, because we are his. We are holy because we are his. We are holy because we are his. And so by their obedience to God, they became the means of bringing the nations to turn and trust in God. The way the nations were to trust in God was through God's people. They were actually the mediators of God's blessings to the other nations. God set them apart so that they could be a blessing to the nations that were around them. And so Israel was intended to be missional. We are holy because we are missional. We are holy because we're called to live on mission. Point number two is we are holy because we are missional. We are holy because we are missional. We are holy because we are missional. And so here's, here's what's Israel's thing. Israel was supposed to mirror God's character and his deeds so that they could, one, sanctify the world and so that they could show what God was like and how God actually behaves. How would they know what God was like if they didn't see representatives of God? Right. And so God handed his commandments to his people so that they can see his character and then they can go out and mirror his character to the world. And so we are holy because we are witnesses to the goodness and grace of God. Point number three, we are holy because we are witnesses to the goodness and the grace of God. We are holy because we are witnesses to the goodness and the grace of God. Wait a minute. So we are holy because we are his. We are holy because we're missional, which means we represent him. And we are holy because we are witnesses to the goodness and grace of God. So ultimately, the call to be holy was never primarily about the people. It was always about God. We grew up thinking holiness was about us. Actually, holiness was about God because it served a purpose for us to know what God was like, for the people to know what God was like, for us to mediate to the people what God's goodness was like. They needed to see how God was. But how could they see how God was if God's people showed them a different picture? So holiness was always about God from the beginning. Holiness was not about obeying rules. It was about demonstrating to a lost world what the living, true God actually looked like. We were painting a picture of our God. That is what holiness is about. And if we are called, God's called out and chosen people, there is no significant area in our lives in which we escape the call to be holy. Whew. Don't let the pressure get to you. You can't do it in your own power. Let it drive you to the cross. And so what Peter is saying is the same thing that his discipler was alluding to. Peter is only saying what his disciples said. He reached back in Leviticus in the Old Testament, but he's actually just repeating what his primarily, primary discipler was saying to him. He was saying to them, be different from other people so that, that, that you don't draw your inspiration from the norms of society, but you draw it from the character of God. Who was Peter's discipler? Jesus. Jesus. 
And what did Jesus say in Matthew 5, verse 48? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. Jesus is repeating what was stated in Leviticus. And if we're not holy, then what makes us different? And how will the world know who we belong to? If there is no distinction, how will the world know who is who? How can we be missional if we're the same as everyone else? Not better than everyone else, just different. Not the same, but different. Not better, but different. We have the same issues they have. We've just been saved by the grace of God. Our issues drive us to the cross. Theirs drive them to despair. So it's not just about avoiding sin and pursuing the righteousness, although that is a part of it. But it's actually consisting also of cultural values. It's not just our character that must be like God. Our thinking must be as well. God didn't just redeem our bodies. He redeemed our minds. So. I say that I'm a Christian and I believe in the sanctity of life. I believe that God gave life to everybody, but I'm okay with it when people don't regard the sanctity of life and they make provisions against it. I will actually even drive my friend there to violate what the Bible tells me we're not supposed to do. I say that I'm a Christian and I believe that God designed marriage, that he designed it to be a union between a man and a woman. But I'm a Christian pastor and I'm okay with performing a same-sex wedding. Or I'm a follower of Jesus and I believe that marriage is ordained by God. Surely I believe that. But I will knowingly participate in and give approval to someone close to me that is married the same sex so that I don't lose the relationship. Not better, different. <laughs> The crazy thing is, some of you are already offended. It sounds insensitive to some to even have a biblical perspective in the church. But, but, but we must understand that God doesn't deal with the world on its terms. That's where the confusion lies. We think God deals with them on their terms. And we make, let them think that we are crazy. No, we ain't crazy. We are dealing with you on God's terms, not ours and not yours. I'm not saying I don't want to do what you're doing. I'm just saying I can't do what you're doing. It ain't about the desire. It's about the decision. And what makes me an exile in that? What, what makes me live in a different world from where I came from, which is heaven. It puts us at odds with society in the world. And this is what makes us exiles, foreigners, and aliens in the world because our view sounds hostile and insensitive. But it ain't our view. It's God's view. What you want me to do? You got the Instagram model, I got the God model. 
This is a call to live different. And so, Jesus says something interesting. He says, be holy as your heavenly father is holy. Even the writer of the Different World theme song said, I know my parents love me. But Jesus is also, it was like the writer of the theme song from a different world was saying their parents sent them to college, sent them away from home to be different than everybody else. Jesus says, be perfect as your father is perfect. And so if we ought to exhibit godly characteristics, then it's not like we're trying to mimic a stranger. We're not mimicking some figment of our imagination in the sky. We are mimicking a relationship that is much closer than that of a stranger. We are mimicking the relationship we have with our father. This is a parental covenantal relationship that we are in. So we're not mimicking some God pie in the sky. We're just being like our daddy. We're just being like our father. And so, remember verse 14 says, as obedient children, do not conform to your former ignorance. As obedient children. Why would they call us children unless we got parent? A parent. You, You don't believe me. So let's look at verses 17 through 21. It says this, if you appeal to the father who judges impartially according to each one's work, you are to conduct yourselves in reverence during your time living as strangers. For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but what was revealed in these last times for you. Through him, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. The third thing that we need, we needed hope, holiness. And the third thing we need is faith. Fear. For those of you that need me to break it down further, you can write in your notes fear slash reverence. Fear slash reverence. And so our holiness is patterned after God, our Father. God is a wonderful, gracious, tender father that loves his children. He is a faithful and merciful father. And for some in the room, that sounds crazy and it sounds unrelatable because you don't have that with your natural. But and so 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 the role of the father in our society is so trivialized that the thought of reverence toward a father seems like a novelty. You don't have reverence for a father. Because I don't have reverence for my regular father. And so we don't honor fathers like that in our culture and our society. Fathers get a bad rap. Some of it deservingly so, depending on your personal experience. So in some communities and ethnicities, the problem is more systemic than what meets the eye. So some of us have a hard time connecting to the Godfather thing because we're looking at the picture of a man. However, the role of the father or that perspective of a father that we have in our culture is different from one they had in Jewish society. 
The father ranked high. The father was actually more of a spiritual figure. He was highly, more highly regarded than actually a judge was. So the father's function was to be an excellent teacher of his children. The, the father had a hands-on role with discipling and teaching the children. And so the father functioned like a father, but also like an impartial judge who gave rewards, but at times he had to give out punishment. So, so he was a good, a good and impartial father. And so we have a good father when we talk about God. He's a good and perfect father. A good parent is one that if the school calls and says your child has been acting up, the, the, the father, the parent is not going to blame the school and the other kids in class. This part, father is impartial. Just because he is our father doesn't mean he won't judge us. We will all be judged according to the same standard. So the God that we serve, the father that we serve, does not play favorites. He is impartial. And so he will judge our work when he gets home from work or when he returns, I should say. But here's the good news about our father. Our father won't judge us according to our sins because our sin has already been taken on the cross. The punishment for our sin has already been taken on the cross by our elder brother Jesus. And so the good news is that we have a reward from our father for those who endure to the end. And so in that time in history, the way fathers was highly esteemed, traditions were valued. So whatever tradition your father handed down to you, whether a horrible one or an idolatrous one, People tuck it because it was there. It came from the dad, came from the dad. And so Peter is saying God redeemed us from the issues that many of us have with our fathers. No matter how near and dear they are to our hearts. Look at what it says in verses 18 through 19. For you know that you are redeemed from your empty way of life inherited from who? Your father's. Not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. And what he's saying is this. We have been freed and liberated from the slavery to sin of our old life and brought into a new way of living in Christ. He redeemed us like a good father, not like an absent father who only made empty promises and only showed up on birthdays and holidays with material gifts. Fathers that only uh, offered presents but never gave us their presence and left us with uh, generational hurdles and strongholds and curses and nonsense and emotional PTSD and only gave us Jordans as if that meant something to our future and all of that stuff did not lead us to trust and faith in God but this good father has redeemed us from the pain of our past and daddy issues and he's redeemed us from the doom of our future with the curses and he's redeemed us from death even itself he's a good father He's a good father. He redeemed us with something more valuable than a Christmas gift, something more eternal and everlasting. He freed us from curses and freed us from sin and shame and guilt. He redeemed us with the perfect sinless gift of his son and with the precious blood of the lamb. He gave the life of his only son so that we could be called his sons and daughters. He's a loving and gracious father that is good, great, and a perfect gift giver. So, I'm almost done. We must have fear, <laughs> not terror. Fear, not terror. A good father is one that the child loves, but the child has honor and respect for. So fear of the Lord should not drive us away from the father. It should drive us to him. 
This is the type of father that God is to us, the one that loves us and cares for us, but he doesn't give us a license to do anything that we want. That's bad parenting. If you appeal to the father who judges impartially according to each one's work, you are to conduct yourselves in reverence during your time living as strangers. I want to read to you what it says in Proverbs 9 and 10. It says this, for the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fear. Fear plays a role in us being on mission. Fear plays a role in our evangelism. We recognize the greatest hindrance to our evangelism isn't necessarily stifling fear. It's a lack of fear. The fear and reverence that you have for your father who sent you should override the fear you have of being rejected by your neighbor. So stifling fear that keeps you, uh, I don't know if I should say something, that that fear should be overrode by the fear that you have in love for your father that has called you. Here's why I say this. The early church exploding, booming. We look at Acts chapter 9, verse 31. Acts 9, 31 says something so beautiful, so amazing. And so enlightening for us. Here's what it says. So the church throughout all Judea, Galilee and Samaria had peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It increased in numbers. Because they had the fear of the Lord. They had a hefty dose of fear. They went out preaching about the son of God who was God's plan from the beginning to redeem humanity. They preached Christ's life, his death, his resurrection with a greater revelation to come when he returns. They preached about it. This is not just what we preach, but it is where we place our hope ourselves. And this is what the early church did. They told him about Jesus. They told him about his life, his death and his resurrection and told him that he was coming back again. And the church grew and exploded. So, in with this, verse 21. Through him, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. So that your faith, would you look at the last four words? Your faith and hope are in God. It begins with hope, it ends with hope. Hope bookends our passage today. What you need is hope. When you leave church today, enjoy your Sunday brunch and Sunday nap to follow. (laughs) And your preparation for your Monday. What you need on Monday morning is not another shot of Java. You need hope. What you need on Wednesday It's not for Friday to hurry up and get here. What you need is hope. What you need when things don't go as planned is not to scramble and figure out what you got to do. What you need is hope. When the feelings come that I'm not far as I should be, I thought I would be rich at 25. (laughs) When that overwhelms you, What you need is to cut off your Instagram and hope. When the relationship does not work out, because at some point it will not. 
What you need is not to beg them to get back together again. But you need to thank God and you need hope. When you work as unto the Lord and you do your best and you still are persecuted at your job. What you need is not to immediately go to LinkedIn and update your account. What you need is hope in God that this is only temporary. But when you get sick in your body in old age and the doctors have no answer. You don't need to seek out a, a soothsayer or some sort of witch or, or, or magician or witchcraft. You, you need hope in God, knowing that he's coming back and he's going to make everything work out. What we need is hope. We anticipate the day when suffering will be no more and we will experience the fullness of God's salvation with the resurrection and the glorification of our bodies. So this passage is trying to ground our hope in God, trying to ground our hope in the Jesus that was raised to life, never to die again. So for us to be holy as he is holy is for us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength. And it's for us to love our neighbor as ourselves. The world is difficult. It is hard at times. There are pressures. There's oppression, there's persecution. Because it's a different world than where we come from. But our hope is in God. Let us pray. We hope you were blessed by the message today and would love to hear about how God is using this ministry in your life. You can connect with us online at outpouringorlando.com to share your story, request prayer, give financial support, or learn more about our ministry. We'd love to see you at one of our Sunday services if you're ever in the Orlando area. Thanks again for joining us today. Have a wonderful week.